Hi, welcome to Virginia is for Voters, a limited podcast series following the Virginia elections and redistricting for the 2021 cycle. I'm your host, Nadia Nadam, and today you'll hear my discussion with Matt Rogers, Democratic candidate for delegate in Virginia's 47th House District. I really enjoy talking to Matt, not only because he's an Eagles fan, but he's got a lot to say about Virginia politics and the kind of change the Commonwealth desperately needs that he wants to assist in making happen if elected. Matt offered a lot of fresh perspectives on various topics, such as what happens after we legalize cannabis and the nuances of accepting the Activate Virginia pledge, all of which you should just hear from him himself. So why don't we get started? as a new host. Um, okay, well, we can get started. I am joined uh, by Matt Rogers today. He's a candidate, Democratic candidate for the uh, 47th House District in Virginia. Uh, why don't you start by telling us a little about yourself and why you decided to run? Yeah, so uh, I'm Matt Rogers. Uh, when, I, when I was in college, uh, I was just a regular college dude until I stepped into my uh, my first internship, which was at the Kane for Senate campaign. And as soon as I stepped into that office, I was like, oh my God, like this is the buzz. It wasn't like, you know, I had a super cool job. It wasn't like I was, you know, you know, had some lofty, you know, big office or anything. It was just the buzz in the room and the feeling that the work that we were doing was, was creating a better society. And so I kind of, from that point on, dove headfirst into politics uh, around the clock. I was like, oh, we, we got to have some Democrats on campus. I didn't even know we had a Young Democrats chapter on campus. So like my first meeting, we were ha- they were having elections. So I ran for vice president of communications, which m- meant that I could uh, manage the Facebook account and the Twitter accounts. And I was like, oh yeah, let's do that. So I started learning about that. And that was my first foray into doing kind of uh, political communications. And ever since then, been working on campaign after campaign, um, issue after issue. I've done nonprofit work. I've done work in D.C. on Capitol Hill, uh, working in the Virginia General Assembly on on legislation and and taking constituent service, making sure people get the unemployment help that they need. Uh, and I'm running now because uh, we we find ourselves in unique times. Uh, After the presidency of Donald Trump, uh, there's a feeling within the party, we're kind of at a crossroads because we've had so much success. um, You know, while we watched the nightmare going on in D.C. with Trump, we also have had a lot of electoral success as a result um, because the backlash. And I think that's been built upon not only just people getting upset at Trump, but people realizing that Trump represented uh, certain policies and ideals and the ugliness underbelly, the ugly underbelly of of our political current. And so there's a feeling, do we kind of go back to business as usual? Do we uh, kind of just run a few candidates hope that they raise some money, they knock a few doors, and then we kind of just barely hold on? Or do we kind of continue pushing? Do we continue uh, staying activated? We continue hitting the doors and making the calls and 
Um, so that's the angle I come at it from. I think that you know, just electing Democrats, while I'm a, a proud Democrat, somebody who does this constantly, I think, especially in districts like the 47th, it's the it's the floor, not the ceiling. I mean, there's no way uh, that Republicans get elected here, even in nonpartisan races. Arlington Democrats, as a precinct captain, we we found ways to make sure that we get Democrats elected. So that's not that's off the table. There are other districts, other people you've likely had on the show or will likely have on the show where they have to have a make a different case. Uh, here in Arlington, the Democratic nominee will be the delegate, and so that presents a question. Um, what do we want that, that not just physically, uh, but what do we want their experience to look like? What do we want them to fight for? Um, I'm somebody who's, a, you know, I did not choose, Arl I did not grow up in Arlington. I chose Arlington. My wife and I moved here in 2015. Uh, at that time, I said in my last political ad that I was, I, I was a uh, intern on Capitol Hill free worker intern, right? Uh, on Capitol Hill, I was making $10 a day. Oh yeah, and... I know how that goes. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I worked nights uh, at Buffalo Wild Wings to put some uh, something into the, into the rent. So uh, when I'm in office, uh, working class people, people who have student loan debt still, uh, people who still rent because the, the, the cost of living here in Arlington is so high, they won't just have somebody who understands from an academic point of view, but from a very visceral point of view. So you let me get going. So I'm going to let you start asking some nice. questions. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, you definitely gave me a lot to work with. I mean, touching on currently, there's a lot of talk with Trumpism about this new split. Where does it leave the GOP party? But Trumpism had a an effect on the Democratic Party as well. We see all of these progressives um, running in primaries and running extremely professional races. And you are one of those candidates. And that's really Thank exciting. Um, yeah. yeah. And that $10 an hour was going to fuel your coffee, nothing else. <laughs> so seriously. <laughs> yeah. I noticed on your, um, you know, I was on your, your issues page um, and you, mention paying interns and that is huge because that advantage right i mean you you're talking about you're running for office now why you decided and you were telling me a story that goes back all the way to when you were interning which just shows that getting a foot in the door being able to afford a free internship yes. is what sets you up for the rest of your life and if there are any obstacles when you're just getting started how are you supposed to be the best person that you can be and reach your full potential. So, I mean, with all that, you've got me riled up now. Um, <laughs> you could, uh, why don't you talk about some of the other great platforms that you're running on? Yeah. So, so, and just a, just a word on the intern thing. I, I, I think the, having worked in the general assembly, having taken those meetings with, with lobbyists and advocacy groups and, and worked on, uh, you know, in district and then taking the bills down to Richmond. The idea that I put on the website is that no intern by law would be allowed to be paid less than less than one half the minimum wage, whatever the minimum wage was. Um, in no way would that be, again, the ceiling of where I would go, I believe. And what I do in business and what I do on this campaign is nobody who works on this campaign or with me in business makes less than $15 an hour. 
and I, I think it's important that we reframe these economic issues in terms of, you know, the word minimum is minimum. This is the, the lowest amount legally that a business or a campaign or whatever it may be, if you're employing somebody, you need to pay them. Uh, another thing that I've been very excited about talking about and, and showing some leadership on is cannabis policy. Um, far too long. I mean, more recently, we've, we've had some cool press clippings uh, and, and some movement. We have some public leaders, you know, saying we want to legalize, which is great. Uh, but for far too long, we let that issue linger on for way too long to a point as Democrats where we didn't get all the upside off of it that we could have. And uh, even more so than LGBT equality, that issue has just taken off. I mean, it's not even a really a partisan thing. You could talk to young Republicans, old Republicans. Generally, they're going to be they're going to be uh, receptive to to cannabis uh, reform. And you know, I really don't like the way that we discuss these things always in the crim like criminal justice reform is something that's really important to me and and is really like viscerally. I understand viscerally. But so often I get frustrated because when we talk about cannabis policy, we only talk about like not locking people up. We don't talk about, uh, and it's always in the frame of legalize versus decriminalize. And like, and then once we get to legalize, we're done. The issue has been, you know, we washed our hands of it. Forget everyone <laughs> behind bars. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Go on. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I'm glad I'm getting you fired up this morning. Uh, it's, you know, we've got, you know, we've got to restore people back. We got to give them their voting rights back. We've got to set up a medical system uh, with experts in, in place that, you know, we're not deciding the kind of medicine that people can get based on what's politically expedient. I mean, it's, we got to allow people to get the flower uh, product, which we, the, the law has changed and, and will allow people to do. It's just so much of this is, is based on political decisions that get made uh, to cover some people and that's where I find myself and so many of uh, my colleagues uh, running progressive uh, primary, quote, primary challenges running for office um, to put these issues on the front burner. Because so often, if all we do is uh, every, every year, all we do is throw out a bunch of candidates in swing districts allow them to be overly prepped by consultants and poll tested all their messages. We're not talking about the things that get Democrats uh, excited to vote and could possibly bring in independents and some, some uh, lean Republicans. So I'm excited. Yeah. And going back to the cannabis a little bit, I mean, I, the salt in the wound is that these GOP operatives are now really cashing in on the cannabis market now that it's in this you know brick and mortar institution kind of format and you know john boehner comes to mind he is in office like you know i'm maybe stretching reality a little bit but i'm sure that i could prove that someone is behind bars in part because of him and you know oh gosh, cannabis yeah. legislation and now he's making millions and millions of dollars and in interviews completely ignores the question of 
well, what about the criminal justice reform aspect of it? It's painful. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a it, you know, it's a, it's not, I think about in, in my mind, at least, you know, initially right now, I think about it kind of in three ways. There's the criminal justice uh, leg of this stool. There's the medical, uh, the medical angle of this stool. And then there's the business. Uh, and the business is tied to tax revenues, which we could be using to improve lives here and across the country. And so, you know, there are people as we as we let this industry lag on, there are political downsides to allowing the Republicans to, you know, get start to be seen as like, this is our issue, too. This is not a, a issue. And then it also is going to box out the the small business people. So we're going to allow like these Altria these these big conglomerates to get themselves ready to go. And then as the law was passed this year, 2024 uh, is when we'll allow this this thing to become you know fully up and running. It's just a huge missed opportunity. Yeah, it does seem like a huge missed opportunity. And it also feels pretty counterintuitive to, you know, being for the small business <laughs> guy that I feel like the GOP tries to cosplay as. Um, but enough about them. <laughs> How would you, uh, you know, Arlington is, would you say the largest city in your, in your district? Oh, it's all, um, so or it doesn't cross into anything else. It's just okay. uh, part North Arlington or what has a little bit of South Arlington. So it's a, it's all one. So like Arlington's very large. Relatively. Uh, um, you know, it's not like Richmond or New York City, mm -hmm. Richmond, New York City are, are vastly different, but it's, <laughs> uh, it's, it's, this district cuts across the middle portion, middle to north, to northwest part. How would you describe um, the average constituent, potential constituent and voter in this, um, in the 47th? Democrat, uh, Democrat, generally young. When you look at the, um, when you look at the demographics of this district, this is a an, it, it, it skewed the the number of very old uh, people. You know, we'll we'll say that that's about 75, 80, significantly uh, down in that area. But as you get towards that uh, 45 to 21 range, it's outsized, completely outsized, especially when you get to the age ranges of 21 to just a little older than me, 21 to 35. It's about uh, over a third of the district is right around my age range. A lot of um, young professionals, a lot of people like myself who've just moved here in the last few years, um, re uh, religiously, uh, not, not, not a, it tends to not be people who are, you know, every week churchgoers, um, uh, racially diverse, uh, all, all it, it spans the, the, the gamut, um, but politically a lot more progressive um, than, than what people would tend to understand. And, and I think that's largely, um, we don't know. Uh, that last part is a hypothesis because mm -hmm. here in this district, uh, we haven't had a democratic primary since 2009. So essentially the assumption is is the politics of this district are the politics of a specific individual. And uh, I think, you know, I'm someone who moved here uh, six years ago, haven't had a choice since. I voted for, you know, the person who's the incumbent. 
three times now, or yes, three times now. And, but that doesn't mean that that is my political ideology. When voters don't have choices, you just go with what's on the ballot. Completely. And so I think folks are excited as, as we talk to more and more people on, on the phones, in person, uh, at, at meetings, they're like, wow. And, and I think it's, it's important that people understand that, you know, we're seeing the thing that's going on right now, timestamp this uh, interview, um, what's going on down in Atlanta right now, it seems that we have a string of hate crimes going on. And uh, what, what ends up happening in our politics is we kind of see these things happen. And, you know, if you end up living, if you, if you tend to live in a blue progressive bubble, you believe you're like, okay, you know, we need to make everyone like ourselves. Like we need to, you know, we need to transport our kind of uh, belief into, you know, where they live. Like if they were just like us. And unfortunately the truth is like racial profiling happens right here in Arlington too. It happens all the time. You know, our former Commonwealth attorney, the number one thing that she was prosecuting when she was in office was cannabis. In the final year, nearly 60% of the cannabis arrests were black people, even though the county's that's nowhere near what the county is. Just two weeks ago when I was out just leaving papers around a neighborhood that I'm running in, I had the police called on me. Uh, uh, simply for, uh, simply for doing that kind of thing. Um, a person in December had the police called on them for, for taking, simply for taking photos. And so I think it's important that we, we not pat ourselves on the back and, and remain committed to the, the long-term work of, of bettering our society. Absolutely. And clearly, you know, I would, my next question is regarding the how the Democrats have a supermajority um, control over the legislature and the governor's office. And it makes you wonder then, OK, what is at the root of all these issues? What is at the root of these hate crimes? What is at the root of this racial profiling? Why do I still why do I still live in a community where I feel unsafe? And, um, you know, it's like, is it just is it just party? What is the work that still needs to get done. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. I mean, mm -hmm. and to be completely fair to the people who are in office currently, uh, there is only so much that you could do uh, in, in, in what three legislatures. It's been a lot of time, but I will say that a lot of the work has been um, delayed for political expediency only. Uh, when bills on uh, Green New Deal or repealing right to work or qualified immunity, uh, they're delayed using stall tactics and parliamentary procedures uh, to try to protect members. Uh, that's not a D or R thing. That's about the priorities of the people who are in office. So while we have 55 seats in the, in the House, uh, we only have 21 in the Senate, and some of those members are very conservative Democrats who work out deals with people on the House side so that the bill never comes over to them and they don't have to make tough votes. So they don't have and, to like lose face essentially with their party. Ex well, lose face with their more conservative members of their, uh, 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 you know, of their constituents or, or whatever the case may be. And mm -hmm. so that's why elections like this are important. Uh, because 
while the Senate isn't on the ballot this year, uh, these ideas are on the ballot. And if you're seeing a flood of people who are running on specific things winning, the House of Delegates cuts the state of Virginia 100 ways. The Senate cuts the House, uh, the state of Virginia 40 ways. Those districts are inside of Senate districts. So if the politics, the, the, the uh, priorities of the people who live in those districts, it transfers over. So, you know, you see more people who are saying there's no way in hell we should have allowed uh, repeal of right to work to have to go to a, 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 um, a stunt like that on the floor and then have, you know, most of the people in the body vote no, then you won't see that happening. But there are people who are on the other side of this who want us to, you know, delay progress. And that's what politics is about. People having choices. So we'll we'll have some choices. Yes. And, and that should be, you know, alarming for listeners to hear that deals may be being worked out in but in this bicameral situation. Our representatives and our senators are public servants. They should not be having popularity contests. <laughs> and and that's, I think, I think that that's, you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, I think, you know, we send them there, you know, there are representatives, we send them there to take votes, to say on the issue, do you, do you support this? Do you not support this? If you do not support it, that's fine. If you have a reasonable argument, you, I can decide to vote for you. I can des- decide not to vote for you next time. But when you have these kind of, you know, uh, reindeer games going on, then it, it makes it really confusing for constituents. And it's all a part of, 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 our, of our political system not being accessible to the everyday person on purpose. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Virginia Democrats have had control of the state legislature for two years. Um, What do you wish they had done differently? And what do you hope to expand upon if elected? Yeah, uh, well, the the cannabis policy, uh, that is something that uh, um, while we got good press clippings on it, the bill does nothing because it has a reenactment clause. So you get me in there, you would have somebody who uh, has you know, personal experience, experience working on the, with the players here, uh, has been in these legalization work group meetings, uh, who understands that, you know, as we craft this industry, we have to allow the people who have been victimized by this criminalization uh, to work in this industry, create um, apprenticeships for them to be able to do so. I think you'll have a champion in office for, uh, for workers' rights, for collective bargaining. Um, I think we need a, a tax system in this state that doesn't reward, you know, oligarchy. I live in Arlington and we're being taken advantage of by, if you come to Arlington, you look right over across the Potomac, you have all these companies who come station their, their businesses in Virginia to take advantage of our tax laws and they're doing all their business in D.C., because they can go to the hill. Oh. And so it's 
it, there's a there's a lot that I would that I would like to do, and I'm uh, quite qualified and experienced in doing it. If I was elected, I'd be this would be my eighth legislative session working down in, um, on the, on the issues of of renters' rights and and uh, legal representation for renters. We we shouldn't be allowing uh, these individuals or companies to be throwing people out of their out of their living situations unjustly and it's it's hard to say that it doesn't happen uh we know that it happens yeah what do you um is virginia doesn't virginia have pretty i'm not from virginia i'm very interested in campaigns and you know following um the everything political that's going on in virginia right now on the on this off year but i do you know bring on guests that i can pick their brains and get their their expert opinion um but it's my understanding that virginia has or is at least trying to have some pretty like groundbreaking legislation in terms of um ending homelessness like kind kind of there, maybe Virginia is one of few states that has um, actual safe safeguards against home homeless populations. But maybe not, that was I a headline heard, that. Yeah, I have not. I had not um, seen. I had not seen anything about that. But I'd be um, very excited about that as somebody who grew up in Philadelphia and and understands you know how it's a cycle. I uh, work. Uh, my wife is on the board of a, 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 a anti-poverty nonprofit called Arlington Thrive, which we try to help people uh, not slide into the cycle of poverty. I don't know if in the pandemic year we've we any kind of program like this would have to come with some some money. So yeah, I, I mean, I believe you. This. I believe you and your wife more it was probably just an overzealous like tweet or something. I went and I went to <laughs> Temple, so go. Oh, birds. you went to Temple, cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, yeah, I was on your TikTok. I saw you in an Eagles hat, and I was like, yes, yeah! <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> yes, yes. I actually that's uh, where I lived. I lived uh, off of Ridge Avenue, so up there by oh, okay. Cecil B. Moore and all that. Yep. Yeah. Um. Okay, and you have received quite a lot of endorsements. Um, was receiving that kind of good feedback regarding your candidacy important for you, or were you set on running for office regardless of outside support? You know, like you know your voters, you know what's up. You don't need these endorsements. I, uh, you know, I'd be lying if I said it doesn't feel nice to right. for people to say, "Yeah, Matt, I'm with you." You know, what do you need? Uh, but I was set on on running for this office regardless. Um, and there are some folks who uh, folks will find are, are not so supportive of, of my candidacy. And that's that's politics. Uh, but I think. I think the kind of endorsements that I've received are, are more fulfilling for me, you know, the kind of, you know, activist individuals, uh, state representatives that I've helped elect uh, in other states. Uh, people that I've worked with on specific policies, whether that's animal policy or cannabis policy or criminal justice policy here uh, in the state and around the country who've, who've stepped up to say, like, we need that kind of perspective in office. So I, I hope that answers your question. I was going to do this if I had uh, an endorsements page that was uh, that was blank. Uh, no, I think that's the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely feels good. And, but I don't know. I'm kind of getting 
to be of the opinion, and this show isn't supposed to be too heavy on my opinions, but um, <laughs> I, I can start to feel like endorsements um, are meaningless or not, not yes. meaning, not meaningless in that, in that your endorsements that you've received, you know, no, are worthless. I get what you're no saying. Means. Yeah. Yeah. It's I like, get what you're saying because people just feel the, the, the requirement to provide it. It's just yes. like, oh, I'll just, just slap my face up on your website. It's not actually, that's what I hope to achieve, like through what the people who have endorsed me and supporting me, like give the folks a reason, give the folks a perspective into like the intersection of when you've worked with me and why, would I truly be a good, if people just want to say, throw my name up on the site, I, I say, you know, well, thank you for your support. Mm-hmm. My act blue page is here. Because mm-hmm. if you want to just provide just a support in that and in, in that respect, then you're, you're you're just face. And I think so often what you're saying, I, I respect it because mm-hmm. it, you go to these candidates campaigns pages and they're just a list of like 100 people who you've never heard of. You don't know what they do or why did you why are you supporting this candidate over the other candidate? Right. It's and not there genuine. is. It's not usually genuine and there is usually a reason, um, especially when you get to, you know, more of the national campaigns, big players and institutions end up having to take sides and then they end up guiding the voter more than they should, quite frankly. (laughs) Um, So did you accept the Activate Virginia pledge to practice? In practice, okay. In, yeah, in, do you want to tell practice. us a little about Activate Virginia Pledge and uh, what that what that means for you? Then, yeah, absolutely. You're not taking any money from from uh, Appalachian Power Dominion. Uh, you know, we have a corrupt campaign finance system here in Virginia. Now, it's obviously not. You know, here's here's money. Here's the bill I need you to 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 pre- present. But it's undeniable that it's everything uh, short. of no, I'm <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, mean short yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have, you end up with as a result of our campaign finance system where companies can bankroll candidates or incumbents for cycle after cycle without those folks ever having to, to really have to raise a dollar, uh, a low dollar contribution from a single Democratic voter not having to ever call somebody who lives next door to them or down the street from them or part of a civic association. You could just have uh, Dominion Energy uh, write you $50,000, write you $100,000. You know, to be frank with you, and I haven't said this publicly, so you're getting kind of like the first time on this is uh, I I have not formally taken this pledge uh, because I have... It's, it's interesting. So I have an interesting, uh, people take the pledge and I don't begrudge them. They take the pledge, but then they cash checks from individuals who take money from Dominion or they take money from the Democratic Party of Virginia who takes money from Dominion. And so are you double dipping if you've, if you've promised to do that? I also don't think that the... The promise of the pledge is if you don't take their money, we'll give you money. And it just doesn't seem on the level for me. Uh, I I don't think that they're, you know, uh, bad people or anything like that. But I I do think asking for overt 
uh, actions from a, a candidate or an elected official in return for a promise of money just doesn't sit well with me. So in practice, I haven't taken a single dollar from any oil executives, Appalachian Power, Dominion, any of it. Uh, but I don't need a pledge in order to, to make that happen. And I don't mean any disrespect sure. to your listeners who probably love people who take the pledge. Just with me, I have to look myself in the mirror, having been on the other side of these tables where, you know, people, I, in my roles, I will say, not speaking to, uh, you know, to puff up my roles, in the roles that I've, I've in, uh, taken, my job responsibilities, there have been individuals who have taken the, this pledge and then having worked with candidates who did not take the pledge and who have taken money from Dominion, writing checks from those individuals who take the money from Dominion to those people who take the activate pledge. So right. I think it's BS. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't think that what you're saying is insulting to listeners. I think that you're offering up a, a new and educated perspective of someone who's saying like, okay, these are my options. My This is my and, and not in like a high horse, this is my moral compass, but just if the objective is to not have an exchange with money, <laughs> yeah, then, you know, it could be any name and there's still this exchange of money with Activate. So you've decided, I don't need any of this exchange yeah. of money. I can have my average donation be 25 yep. to 50 bucks. Yep. And have some zoom fundraisers and that yep. be it. I don't need to like agree with one institution over another for an yeah. equally large check. That makes complete yeah. sense to me. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, for I, sure. I, some people, a couple people haven't liked that. They're like, no, you should just do it anyways. I know Matt, you're trying to be on your high horse, but like it, it, it looks one way and I'm it's not about what it looks like at the end of the day, I have to look myself in the mirror and yeah, uh, and at the end of the day, you know, I am hoping through this candidacy to chart a new course for candidates. I think a lot of times you go through these, a lot of these uh, candidate development uh, institutes and they tell you, they bring you in, you dress up all nice, you're all excited. They tell you, you know, this is what you need to run a campaign. If you can't raise X amount of dollars, you shouldn't even be running. If you can raise X amount of dollars, this is what you need to spend it on. Oh, by the way, we're bringing in people who do this. So they were basically feeding them money. I think, you know, you don't need all that stuff. And having been on the other side, having helped people run campaigns, having helped organize and things like that, I know how to use those dollars in a more effective way. And so I'm excited about June 8th. We'll see. We'll see uh, what the results are. Maybe even a little bit sooner, right? You have your early voting starts April 24th. Your GOTV yes. probably start, get out the vote, probably starts in a week. Um, and <laughs> so you are young. You are the progressive candidate. Um, and in 2020, the progressive arm of the Democratic Party saw su such large gains. Yes. Um, Specifically on the House legislature level throughout various states, there were more gains um, with the Democratic Socialist caucuses coming up, et cetera. My friends often 
make fun of me for following something as specific as the Virginia um, General Assembly House District on an off year election. Um, but I think they might be missing that, you know, Virginia acts as a micro can be a microcosm yes. for the rest of the country and its proximity to DC, our nation's capital should not be ignored. Um, and so I'm curious how you see yourself and your uh, election, your campaign um, in the greater framework of the U.S. U.S. politics as it stands. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I, I think it's important that the Virginia is we are the first test case for any political theory. Uh, you know, the Tea Party Revolution, they tested it here first in Virginia, kicked our asses and took it on to con uh, congressional level where they kicked our asses again. Uh, and as Democrats here in Virginia, we cannot simply be, you hear so often in these conversations, one of the things I got to plug here is I've been part of an effort uh, to recruit candidates in all 100 House of Delegates districts. And I'm proud of that work. Um, oh, wow. Yes. That so, seems like a lofty goal. Okay, keep talking about it. <laughs> yeah, so I've been, um, so every year, every off year, we have 100 districts and Democrats currently control 55. I haven't been part of trying to prime, quote, primary people. I've, you know, I'm a candidate myself. Uh, so that's the one I've been involved in. But for the 45 mm -hmm. GOP held seats, I've been working my ass off with others to make sure that whoever it is who's in those districts who has interest in running that we run them so that we don't give republicans freebies time to spend you know uh and money to spend beating our, our people and it's a fundamentally different vision from what some others in the party believe some in the party believe that we should just uh trim our sails um hold steady and try to play for 51. I'm playing for 61. There are, there are 61 districts here in Virginia that Joe Biden won. Uh, the, if you combine the vote for the presidential election, 61. The same thing happened uh, at the time of the 2016 election. There were uh, enough districts in Virginia for Democrats to have taken the majority, but leadership, uh, people who are in positions to tell people to run people, to not run people, you shouldn't run, you don't have the resources to even run. Everybody in at the highest uh, rungs of all this leadership nonsense told us that we would win at six seats, maybe five seats, won 15 seats. And we would have won a 16th had there not been a stupid bowl drawing where the candidate lost by zero votes. They reached into the bowl and got uh, that. So I think if we, if we as Virginia Democrats, you know, fall back and just kind of take this year for granted and kind of go with the status status quo, we're telling the rest of the country that that's what, what needs to happen. We're, we are not pushing that next level of, of, of activism, but if consequently, I've been successful. We now have uh, 92 candidates, the same number that ran in 2019. We've already reached that. We got some time left. We're going to run. We're going to challenge every single Republican in the House of Delegates. 
and and we're going to push with a progressive vision. We don't have to run uh, milk toast uh, status quo candidates against Republicans. We can put people up who you know agree with what we need to do. And if they end up, some of these candidates are moderates. That's fine too. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't need to be moderate for a political reason if you truly have sincerely held beliefs and you're the candidate. I'll support you and we'll get you in there. Um, but we don't need to predetermine the kind of candidate that we need to run. Yeah, sh- and there are people who will hear this who will disagree with me, but that's <laughs> politics. Well, yeah, there should be, there should be no intimidating from, you know, the, the party that you're not going to win enough seats. It's kind of what it sounds like what was happening, maybe leadership of the, I'll do my research later. Please do. <laughs> um, could you tell me a little bit? I'm sorry. And then and then we really can wrap up because I've had you for enough time. But if I would be doing a disservice to everyone if I didn't pry more about the why was there a vote being decided by a bowl drawing? Uh, because there were there was a disqualification of a number of votes and some votes who who were uh, thrown in at the last minute. I mean, it was a it was a it were uh, a judicial interference in an election basically brought the the election to a tie and then the they reached into the bowl brought the guy's name was david yancey and he won that he won so republicans maintained a 51 to 49 majority if if that had not if that had gone the other way then it would have been a 50 50 tie there would have been a power sharing agreement you know poetic justice uh, just like uh, what happened with Danica Rome, we can talk about another time the uh, bigot that she took out uh, of the House of Delegates. Uh, poetic justice, the lady Shelley Simons, who got, I believe, cheated out of that election, she won th- in 2019 by 20 points. So she not only came back and won, but she won 60-40. So it's it's all it's all about us in Virginia staying on offense as Democrats. We cannot just you know hope to get by and squeak by, and we got we got we got real progress to to achieve for people. Absolutely. Well, it sounds like you have the right idea, and it sounds like you're ready to do it. And hopefully, we can have you on uh, closer to your to. primary. Yes. To your general. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. So thank you. So. Or, were you thinking about something? Uh, 83 days. Uh, 83 days. Uh, 83 days uh, until election day. Uh, and then and then get get out to vote in November. We, we can't just, you know, Virginia is very indicative of the national mood. Uh, and so if we squeak by here, we're going to give Republicans a lot of hope. And we can't do that. If you're interested in supporting Matt Rogers' campaign by donating, he is on Act Blue. Um, and you can go to his campaign website to look for any volunteer opportunities as they arise. Matt said it himself, this seat has been and will continue to be held by a Democrat. So unlike other races, the main event here is the primary election, which is on June 8th, but starts as early as April 24th with early mail-in voting in Virginia. Maybe the Republican candidate would disagree, but the incumbent delegate Patrick Hope has held the seat since 2010. This is the first election cycle that he's facing a challenger in the primary, and in 2019, he even ran unopposed in the general. As progressive Democrats continue to run and win elections, we see that the Democratic Party is not a monolith. 
and more candidates in a Democratic primary means more political ideologies to choose from as voters, which should be seen as a good thing. That's democracy. We want choices that go farther than picking between Republican or Democrat in the general election. However, the Democratic institution historically discourages Democrats from joining a primary race. We don't even have time to talk about the discouragement felt by third-party candidates today. The resounding message from individuals warning against crowded Democratic primaries is the notion that choices will be seen as competition against quote-unquote fellow Democrats, which could make the party look weak in comparison to the Republican candidate by the time the general rolls around. And more tangibly, elections are expensive. Why run two races when you could just run one? Well, to that I say, campaign fundraising as it stands is the problem, not individuals seeking election. As someone who has worked in campaign finance, I have seen firsthand the immense pressure put on candidates to raise unimaginable sums of money when all they wanted to do was run for a cause. I get it. But the bone you have to pick is with campaign finance rules as it stands in Virginia. If Democrats don't want to raise exorbitant funds to get their message out to voters, then why not write campaign finance reform legislation while in office? Matt, just like every candidate running, progressive or not, is running for something, not against a person. The democratic institution and its actors are going to have to decide what role they play in this new, more diverse democratic party as it continues to win elections. Regardless of intimidation he may have felt to not run, Matt is running a strong, people-funded campaign aimed at tackling criminal justice reform and expanding workers' rights in the Commonwealth. Some Democrats may be scared to run and give their voters options. Don't be. I'm looking forward to checking in with him and other progressive primary races as they unfold. Matt mentioned this in our discussion, and it's something on everyone's mind right now. Asian hate crimes are on the rise in the US. And I want to end with a quote from Claudia Jones, a Trinidad Tobago-born journalist and activist. Imperialism is the root cause of racism. It is the ideology which upholds colonial rule and exploitation. It is the ideology which breeds fascism, rightly condemned by the civilized people of the world. Be safe and have a great week. I'm Nadia Nadam and you're listening to Virginia's for Voters.